continue our series, our new series to the book of Ephesians. We sort of tweaked the theme once we got to Ephesians chapter 6, and now we're calling it Battles of the Rich and Godly. And we've looked at a few pieces of armor. We're going to look at these pieces of armor um, one by one. I think it's important. I think they're all really important things we need to look at. And so today we're going to look at the helmet of salvation, and we're calling the lesson today Hopeful Courage. Hopeful Courage. And we're going to look at one half of one verse and I know what you're thinking right now. This is going to be a really short one. Actually, most of you are probably thinking it doesn't matter how much text Walker takes. Get comfortable. <laughs> Hopefully it's somewhere in between. But I know I'm fighting the smell of the food today, so I, I will keep that in mind as I speak. But open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at one half of one verse. It's verse 17a. Before we look at that, though, did you ever need courage to do something difficult? Did you ever need courage to do something hard? I have, usually I share a sort of an icebreaker, funny story. I just want to share a little bit of a story that's not really that funny. It's just kind of interesting. Uh, about 2009, I'm in Michigan uh, serving the Lord on the campus of Eastern Michigan University, connected to a church there. And we were doing this thing at our church. The church had a gymnasium. You guys have ever been in one of those churches? Those churches sometimes have gymnasiums. And this church had a gymnasium. And we decided that the gymnasium was just sitting open and unused most of the week. So we decided to open up the gymnasium once a week and let some of the people come off the streets, some of the guys come off the streets and play basketball. And so we organized a few games and we'd open the, the gymnasium from like seven to nine every Wednesday. And so a lot of guys started coming in from the streets to play basketball. And uh, seriously, we thought we'd get like 15, 20 guys. We had upwards of 50, 60 guys in a couple weeks. And we called it Hoops for the Soul, and we let them play basketball, we organized some games, and right at the middle of the night, we would sit them down in the gymnasium, gymnasium floor, and I would share the gospel, or someone would share the gospel from our church. And then after about 15, 20 minutes of sharing the gospel, we'd let them come back up and play for another hour, and we called it Hoops for the Soul. And uh, one of these nights, there was a few people mulling around kind of in the upper area, and I didn't really know who they were, and afterwards, they kind of came up and talked to me and asked, what are you guys doing here? And I told them, I told them exactly what we were doing. And they were from a, uh, a, an organization called the JCs, and they were about social justice and things like that. And so once I told them what we were doing, uh, she was very intrigued by this. And so she said, can I take you out and talk to you about a little bit more about what you guys do? And I said, yeah, that'd be fine. So I actually went to coffee with this lady and uh, just told her what we were doing on campus, what we were doing, you know, with Hoops for the Soul. And she was very inspired by it. And she said, you know, we're with this company called JCs and I just, I'm very inspired by what you're doing. I, I think, um, can we stay in contact? And I said, yes, uh, just to let her know what's going on. A couple weeks later, she contacted me and said, and said we, we actually every year have this award ceremony. Uh, <laughs> do you remember this? And uh, she goes, we would like to give you an award. And I said, oh, really? And she goes, yeah. She goes, uh, we, have, we have certain you know, different categories of awards, and we would like to award you with the most outstanding religious leader award from the JCs. And I said, oh, you know, that's really not necessary. I said, you know, we're just doing this for the Lord. And she goes, no, we really would like to give you an award and, and have you come to our ceremony, come to our banquet, and give a little speech. And I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really into those kind of things. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, this could be quite a unique opportunity. Because this was not a Christian group. This was not a religious group even. It was just kind of a social justice, and she told me there were going to be about two to 250 people at this banquet, and I was going to have 15 minutes to share with them and inspire them. And so I talked to Janine and said, I'm not really the type of person who would go to something like this, but I said, maybe we're supposed to. 
And so I don't know what she expected me to share, but I sort of like mustered up the courage to go and stand in front of these people and uh, share the gospel. And I typically, when I shared, you know, the message of the word, I was in a church setting like this or a Bible study on campus. This was a secular environment. And there were going to be 250 people. It was like black tie, dressed to the nines. They had Miss Michigan there for some reason. She was the one handing out awards. So I got to be Miss Michigan of 2008. That was pretty <laughs> radical. <laughs> um, but I, I just decided to say, this, this is a unique opportunity. I need to take these 15 minutes and share the light of Jesus Christ. So it was, I, I'm not usually bothered by public speaking, but I remember being nervous by that and needing courage to stand up in front of these people and share with them the message of the gospel, because I'm sure no one expected me to do that. She wanted me to get up and give some sort of inspirational speech and motivational speech. And I said, that's the only thing I have to share with these people is the hope of Jesus. So the, the woman that actually got up before me, she was awarded for something else, was actually LGBT community, lesbian, and I was following her. And she was at our table and things like that, and I was following her. She got up and everybody clapped and gave her a standing ovation. And then I got up and said, open your Bibles. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I started to share the gospel, and I said, I have something to share with you today. I have something that's going to hopefully inspire you and motivate you, but I have something to share with you, and I believe God wants me to share this. And for the next 15 minutes, I just boldly shared the gospel to 250 people who really had no idea that it was coming. And I needed courage. I remember butterflies and shaky hands going, man, this is unique. This is a, quite a unique experience. But God blessed it. I don't know if anybody came to the Lord that night, but I got to meet Miss Michigan. She gave me an award. I've been famous ever since. So did you ever have to do something that needed courage, something difficult? We're going to look at something like that today, something that needs courage. In fact, we're going to call it hopeful courage. And we're going to look at this verse 17, and it's really short, but we're going to kind of keep it in context. This is what Paul says when he gets to verse 17. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. That's it. That's what we're going to look at today. Take the helmet of salvation. We have two goals today that we hope to get to. Number one is to understand this great salvation that Paul is talking about. And number two is to gain the hopeful courage that we can receive from this great salvation. Okay, so two goals about uh, this great helmet of salvation we're going to talk about. But I do want to continue to review very briefly so we understand where we're coming from. Because Paul has told us that we're in battle. We're in a pretty intense battle. And he's exhorted us to do a few things leading up to this verse. The first thing he told us in verse 10 was to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He told us you need power that you don't have. You need strength that only God can give you for this. So be strong in his might. In verse 11, he said, put on the whole armor of God. This battle is so intense, you're going to need armor that is from God to fight this battle. And then he started to tell us what the pieces of armor were. In verse 14, he said, take the belt of truth. You need truth to fight this battle. The deception that evil one is giving you a bunch of lies, and you need truth to fight those lies. So you need the belt of truth. In verse 14, he also said, take the breastplate of righteousness. You need to be clothed in righteousness because evil is coming after you and you need righteousness to stand against evil. And we talked about how important it is to have Christ's righteousness. Then in verse 15, he said you need shoes or readiness of the gospel of peace. You need to be ready. You need to be ready for whatever your Lord says you should do. So put on your shoes of readiness and be ready to take the commands of your Lord and put them into practice. And then last week, Pastor Mel talked to us about the shield of faith. 
the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we've learned four pieces of armor up to this point, and now we're going to look at number five. When he says to us, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Nobody goes into battle without a helmet, right? That would be silly, foolish. I can imagine that no one misses the discipline of grabbing their helmet when they go into battle. That's not something you forget. You go into battle without a helmet, you're a goner. Right? Helmets are crucial. Uh, consider how many athletes, sports games, need helmets, right? Uh, going into a football game without a helmet would also be foolish. That's not a good idea. Helmet, I don't see a lot of football players forgetting their helmets. I don't see that happening a lot. This guy here up on the screen, I think he's just got knocked off. I don't think he actually forgot it. Because a helmet is important, isn't it, in a sports game? If you don't take your helmet into a football game, how long do you expect to survive? Not very long. And certainly, if you go into battle, a helmet is crucial. Every single day that you're in battle, you must have your helmet. Especially a battle as intense and dramatic as the one we are in. A blow to our heads without the helmet would be sure death. To not have the helmet is sure death. As you'd expect, the helmet is so important because it protects the what? The mind. The brain. The mind is the center or the core of our decision-making process. To take a really big shot to the brain is not good. The brain is important. That's why our head houses the brain and our helmet houses the head. Because it's really important to protect the brain and the mind. And we make thousands of decisions every single day. Right? Every day we make thousands of decisions. So our minds must have ample protection. Because our enemy, the devil, is seeking to attack our minds and our hearts most of all because he wants the death blow. He doesn't want to just trip us up and delay us. He wants us dead. So attacking the heart and attacking the mind is the way to accomplish that. So we need a helmet. We need a helmet. Just as the breastplate of righteousness we learned about is incredibly strong and it protects our heart, the part of us that feels and is motivated to make decisions, the mind is the part of us that reasons and decides what decisions to actually make. So the helmet must be made out of something incredibly strong as well. And thankfully, we're learning today that our helmet is made up of the salvation we find in Jesus Christ. That is the helmet that we wear. It's the helmet of salvation, the salvation we find in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Do I have to convince you today that salvation is important? Crucial. Salvation is crucial. Even besides saving us from the sin that brings eternal death, which we will talk about, salvation in Jesus brings hope to our minds. We need salvation because it gives us hope and courage. And hope is crucial to having courage. And courage is important to fighting this battle against the evil one. Without salvation, we don't have hope. None of us have hope. And without hope, we can't have courage either. So we need salvation that brings hope, which brings courage. That's kind of the train we're looking at today. And can I be honest with you guys? This battle makes me nervous sometimes. It does. This battle makes me nervous sometimes. I mean, we're fighting against the biggest, baddest, scariest, strongest enemy anyone has ever fought. And he hates us. Specifically, he hates Christians. Hates us. And it makes me nervous a little bit to keep talking about this battle because I don't want to give him any more fuel to seek to destroy me. He doesn't need any more fuel. But I can't give up. 
We can't not talk about this. We can't surrender. There's no white flag to wave. Giving up is abandonment, and we must go on in this path. Surrender is death. So what do we need to go forward? We need courage. Courage to go into the battle, to press on, to progress and continue on the path Christ has placed us on. But sometimes, if I'm honest, I want to lay down, and I want to stop fighting. I want to wave the white flag and say, don't attack me anymore. This is hard. But giving up, like we said, is not an option, is it? We must press on, and therefore we need courage. Courage for this battle. In order to see what hopeful courage God's salvation offers us, we need to do two things, okay? We need to consider what this great salvation saves us from, first and foremost. What does salvation save us from? What does that mean? And number two is to consider what our minds are like without God's great salvation. What are we like if we don't have this hopeful courage? I'm going to do those two things today. So first of all, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? The term And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Jesus is actually saving us from a death we already died. Isn't that interesting? We are already dead. We need to be saved from that death. We need new life. All of us. We're spiritually flatlined. And Christ came to give us salvation. Scripture is quite clear that people can be saved from two primary dangers. Number one is sin. Sin. We can be saved from sin. Number two is death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. People can be saved from sin and death. Or we can simplify that even more and boil it down to one thing that people are saved from. One primary danger, the sin that brings eternal death. That's what we're saved from. The sin that brings eternal death. And eternal death is the words that we use in Scripture. Hell, punishment, separation from God for all eternity. We can be saved from that because that's what sin brings. It brings death, punishment, and separation from God for all eternity. Does anyone want that? Would anyone want to think they're in that category. No. We all want to be saved from that. And we can be. And this is sobering. I want you to consider what eternal separation from your God in hell would be like. I don't want you to linger there and dwell on that long, but I want you to consider, is this something we can afford to be without the salvation? No, we can't. We must have it. Can any of, afford, any of us afford to stand in front of God and for God to say to us, be gone? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No, we can't afford that, can we? No matter what, no matter what happens in this life, no matter if it's good, if it's hard, if it's bad, if we're lonely or not, we cannot ever afford to be without the salvation, can we? No matter what. If we just needed spiritual tweaking or reforming or educating, he wouldn't use the term salvation because it wouldn't make any sense. 
if lifeguards didn't actually save people but just motivated them to swim better, we would probably call them swim coaches, not lifeguards. Uh, lifeguards actually save people from drowning. Did you know I actually saved a little boy from drowning once? I did. I don't know if I ever shared this story, but when I was like 13 or whatever, we went to a, uh, a water park. I think it was Dorney Park. You guys ever been there, Dorney Park, the water park there? Those are gross, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I was like 13 or something like that, and I went into something I'll never do again. I went into a wave pool. Maybe you guys have been to those or seen those. And they have these simulated waves. Well, when I went to this wave pool, it, there were hundreds of people in this wave pool. It was ridiculous. And it wasn't that fun. But I'm in this wave pool, and there are hundreds of people in this thing. And there's a little boy in front of me that I'm not really paying close enough attention to. But during one of the waves, the boy goes under, under the water, and he's not surfacing. And I'm right behind him, and I don't think anyone else noticed that he went under the water. And you know what I didn't do? I did clap for him and say, swim better, come on, do your thing, come out of the water. You know what I did? As a 13-year-old boy, I was old enough and smart enough to say, I have to pull him out of the water. So I reached down and I picked him up and pulled him out of the water and he started gasping for air and I started hitting him on the back. And once he felt okay, I let him go on his way. I didn't know, he, I wasn't his guardian, but I felt he needed to be pulled out from the water because that's what you do, right? If someone's drowning, you save them. So... Jesus isn't a life coach, okay? He's not a life coach. He does coach us, but that is not Jesus' name. He is the Savior of mankind. Jesus is the Savior. You and I and all people need salvation. Not reforming, primarily. Not educating. We need salvation. Because we are all sinners by nature. And unless we find forgiveness... And salvation from sin, sin will equal eternal death. It will. If we don't find salvation, sin will absolutely bring eternal death. That's what I shared to the JCs several years ago. Because it says in Romans 6.23 this, it says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The term wage means like a paycheck. Okay, a paycheck. If you went to God one day as a sinner and you went to collect your paycheck from God, your paycheck would have death written on it. Because that's what you've earned. That's what we've all earned from God. The wages of sin is death. If you remain a sinner, when it's time to give you what you've earned, what you've earned is death. Aren't you glad that verse doesn't stop there, though? For the wages of sin is death, but... One of the best words in the Bible. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. There's the Savior. The wages of sin is death, but there's not a period, there's a comma. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Life is scary. I feel that so many so-called Christians today are just people that have learned religion or moral behavior modifications from their parents or their church upbringing. We sing all the time about God's great salvation, but I wonder perhaps some of us don't know the salvation firsthand because we never really considers, considered ourselves that badly off. 
So we needed a little bit of religion, a little bit of modification. We needed to do a few things and to avoid a few things, and then we're righteous before God. I don't really need salvation. I just need to be clapped at a little bit and motivated to swim better. But every single person on the earth needs salvation. Not just moral modifications to feel righteous. Not just to go to church. Not just to exist in a Christian environment. So we feel Christian by association. Do you know that happens a lot on campus? A lot of people call themselves Christian because they go to a Bible study. Or they grew up going to a church. Or they have a Bible. Or there's a Jesus fish on their car. Or a chain around their neck with a cross on it. That's what makes them Christian. Not salvation, but Christian environments and Christian knowledge. And they're Christian by association. So they refer to themselves as saved when really what they mean is they're mildly religious. Because that's what saved means to them. But what does salvation mean and what are we saved from? We're going to look at that today. See, am I a Michigan sports fan? I am. Did you know that? I'm a Michigan sports fan when they're winning. Anyone else? <laughs> my fandom kind of goes up and down with Michigan sports based on how my team is doing that well. If football team's not doing so great, I jump on the basketball team. And if they're not doing so great, I jump on the hockey team. I've never done that. So am I really a fan? I, I'm a, what you call a fair weather fan. I'm there just in case they win something and I can jump on the glory train. But if you would ask us when we were saved, some of us might describe an experience we had when we obeyed a religious plan of salvation, we might tell you about a time we made a decision to go forward, to accept Jesus into our hearts and to say a prayer and get baptized or join a church. Instead of describing when Jesus Christ reached down to our souls and pulled us out of our sinful state by his own grace and completely changed our nature forever. You see, the things I mentioned can be part of of our salvation experience, and I don't mean to knock those things down entirely. They can be a part of our salvation experience, but salvation is too profound for it to be explained away by man-made experiences. Salvation is so profound, you cannot explain it any other way than God reached down by his son and saved me from dying, saved me from my death. Salvation is too profound to say, I did something. I went forward. I said this. I got a date in my Bible. No. Christ Jesus changed me forever. See, we have a devil who likes to hand out forgeries every day. Did you know that, right? He likes to hand out forgeries, even salvation forgeries. I think I've shared this once, but one time we went to New York City growing up. And if you guys have ever been to the city, you'll be walking on the, on the sidewalk there, and all of a sudden someone, some guy will appear out of the shadows with like a briefcase and just like open it in front of you. <laughs> and I was like, where'd you come from, man? And all of a sudden he's got these really expensive things that he wants to, sh he wants to sell you for really cheap prices. So this one time I went to New York City and this guy had this briefcase full of Rolex watches, gold, shiny, brilliant Rolex watches. And he's like, $15, $15, you can have a Rolex. And I was like, how can I say no to that? Gotta have a Rolex for 15 bucks. So I gave him my 15 bucks. I picked out my nice, shiny, gold Rolex watch. I was thrilled. I was like, man, what a deal of a lifetime. A Rolex watch. I'm going to put it on eBay. I'm going to make thousands. And I brought it to my parents and said, look, I just bought a Rolex watch for 15 bucks. And they weren't as excited as I was. And I was devastated. I'm like, what? This is amazing. 
And my mom and dad were like, I don't think you spell Rolex with a C-K-S, Todd. Um, also, I think the gold is coming off on your wrist there. And why is it smoking? I was like, okay, all right, I get it. It's not a real Rolex. It was a forgery, right? I was the only idiot on the, on, on the planet there that knew it was a, that didn't know it was a fake Rolex. So this guy had me, but forgeries are being handed out every single day. And unfortunately, there's, there's salvation forgeries. And that's so devious, isn't it? That's so devious of the devil to hand out a salvation forgery that doesn't have the power to defeat anything. But to make us feel a little comforted, to make us feel a little bit religious. And so we live in that forgery for a long, long time. And I've seen it and I've been in it. And I know what those forgeries look like. See, but if you don't hate sin, and if you don't have the power to conquer sin, then you should doubt your salvation. Because that's what salvation gives you. It gives you a hatred for sin, and it gives you the power to conquer that sin. And if you don't have that, the question you have to ask is, what have you actually been saved from? What does salvation mean? If you don't have victory over sin, what have you been saved from? If not death and the sin that leads to death. You see, we need the helmet of salvation, not a paper hat that says salvation written on it. We need the helmet of salvation. We must be saved from our sins. Did you know that's what Jesus' name means? When the, the angel came to Joseph and Mary, he said, I want you to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. To save us from our sins. Our sinful nature is the problem. Our sinful nature is the problem. If we're not saved from sin, then we're not saved from eternal death either. I think one of the worst forgery doctrines that exists in the entire world is that Christians can still sin and get away with it. That is not from the Bible. Anywhere. Did you know that? We need to be saved from sin because that changes our path. And once we're saved from sin, we start following Jesus on a brand new path. And that path goes to heaven. Staying on the sinful path and believing we're going to heaven does not work. Never. It's never in scripture. We need to be saved from sin. We need the power to conquer sin. So if we're practicing sin, still, we should question our salvation. We went through 1 John several months ago and we looked at that. That practicing sin is dangerous no matter what you claim to be. Because if you're not saved from the wages of sin, you're still sinning, you should doubt your salvation. And now I need to preface this by saying that this is a process, okay? I understand that once you're saved, you're not perfect, okay? You're not automatically holy and righteous in every action. I understand it's a process, but when you're saved, something changes within you. You have power over sin and you have a hatred towards sin. Maybe you remember your salvation experience. But to speak about salvation for those who have been saved is to speak about two different existence entirely. One that was sinful and hostile toward God, and now one that strives to please God in everything we do. Salvation is both a dependency, or I'll say it this way, a complete dependency upon Jesus. 
Salvation is a complete dependency upon Jesus. I'm doing a few reruns here, but I've shared this story before. But I went to this ride. In fact, I put a little picture up there. I don't know if you can see that. But I went to this ride at this uh, theme park called Cedar Point, and it was called Max Air. And they put you on this big circular thing, and they swing you up in the air, and the circle goes around and around and around. And you are way up in the sky. You're seeing the entire park. And during one of those aspects of that ride, I'm sitting there, and I have this harness over me, which I felt comforted by that because I like that a lot better than the little belt they give you. They gave you that harness, and I felt comforted by that. But during one of the um, parts of that ride, I actually came out of my seat entirely. And my entire 100% of my weight was upon that harness. Now, it was only a fraction of a moment. But I thought, even in the fraction of a moment, that if that harness gives, gives way during that moment, I'm dead. I fly across the park and skip off someone's car, I'm dead. <laughs> right? My entire weight was upon that harness. And I thought about that as I walked around the park, nauseous. I thought about this. I thought, wow, that's a really good illustration for salvation. 100% of me needs to be on Jesus Christ. If he goes, I go. But you know the great thing about it? God has promised that Jesus cannot give way and will not give way, ever. Your entire weight must and should be upon Jesus Christ because that is salvation, to be dependent upon Jesus Christ. But you know what else salvation is? It's a complete dependency on, upon Jesus, but it's also this. It's also a 180-degree turn from our sin to Jesus. It's an entire different path. You guys have ever done that on the road, right? Make a U-turn when possible. Make a U-turn. Anyone been there? The little thing yells at you and go, where are you going, man? I, I told you to get off. And now you're still on the same road. Make a U-turn when possible. Well, I'm telling you today spiritually, make a U-turn, but not just when possible today. If you're not saved, today is the day of your salvation and you need to turn around from sin and death to Jesus, because Jesus is on an entirely different path and a path that leads to eternal life. I want us to imagine asking the Apostle Paul about his salvation. Paul, what's, what was salvation like for you? Paul, explain to me what salvation is. Do you think Paul would speak about something so profound that it changed every single thought, motivation, and action that he had within him? See, Saul used to be, or excuse me, Paul used to be this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a religious man. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. But he did everything he could to stop the Christian message. Everything. He lived his entire life to cease Christians speaking about the gospel. But then one day, Paul, Saul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And it changed him completely. He got a new name. He said, now you're going to be Paul. And the Apostle Paul was now the same physical person as Saul of Tarsus, but was such a different spiritual character that Paul was unrecognizable to those who grew up with Saul of Tarsus. Who is this guy? What is he living for now? What are you doing, Saul? Because he was such a different character. And it's because Paul experienced Christ's salvation firsthand. Firsthand. Hand. He knew what it was like to receive God's acceptance of him through Jesus and to gain God's power over sin. So when Paul was saved, he was spiritually reborn. The old man was dead and the new man was raised to life with Jesus. Wow. Profound. 
salvation experience. And because of this, Paul had hopeful courage that he had never experienced before. Hopeful courage filled Paul's soul. So the question we've got to answer today is, have we been saved by Jesus? Have you been saved by Jesus? And if so, what has he saved you from? Have you become a brand new person with brand new desires and brand new power? If we've been saved from Jesus, then we have God's power over sin. You have power to say no to sin. Sin knocks on your door and says, I own you, obey me, do this. And you can say, no, no, I'm not going to. I don't have to. You don't own me any longer. Salvation gives you power over sin. It also gives you a disgust and a hatred for your sin. Everyone who's been saved knows that is true. That when you're saved, sin now disgusts you. Where before it was your friend. It was your ally. It was something you turned to to feel comforted and relaxed. And now you hate it. It's your mortal enemy. So when we're saved, we get God's power over sin and we get a disgust and a hatred for our sin. Because of this, our sin put Jesus on the cross. It's that simple. We hate sin because our sin put our Lord on the cross. And now sin is our mortal enemy. Has to be. Now we hate sin with a righteous energy. If we have been saved, we have both a disgust about our past lifestyle as well as a determination to never, ever, ever live that way again. Do you have a hatred for sin? Do you have a hatred for sin? Does sin still control you? Does sin still dominate you? Does sin still seem attractive to you? And I don't mean just in a moment. I mean as a pattern. Does sin still seem attractive to you? Does sin still delight you? Does sin still seem cool? To you, is sin still your best friend when you're alone? If so, then what have we been saved from? I want to read you a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I think is great. He said, No man can believe that Christ suffered for his sins and yet live in sin. No man can believe that his iniquities were the murderers of Christ and yet go on and hug those murderers to his bosom. Can't happen. If you believe that sin killed your Lord, sin is now your enemy. If you've been saved from sin, here's the encouraging thing. We're free. Didn't we just sing about it? Our chains are gone. We've been set free. Free from what? From sin, from sin's domination over us, from sin's control over us, and from the death that sin will bring us. We are free people, finally, because of Christ's salvation. Because sin is demonic brainwashing, right? That's what sin is. It's demonic brainwashing. The devil has told us that sin is fun. It's your friend. It's here to help you. It's your buddy. Sin can give you a lot of fun things. And it's not. It's a lie. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. We are free from the love of sin and the power sin once had over us. The chains are gone. We've been set free. Guys, I'm thankful for that freedom. Are you? I am thankful for the freedom I have over sin and the death that follows sin. I'm free because of Jesus. Have you been saved? Saved. 
See, the rest of the lesson today is for those of us who have been saved. But you need to figure this out today if you're not saved. Because salvation is the most important thing anyone can ever, ever discover. Salvation. And we talked about this before, but salvation is only for those who need saving. I mean, it's simple. But salvation is only for those who need saving. If you feel you're pretty good on your own, and you just need a few behavior modifications to become righteous, Christ is not going to save you. Because he's the savior of sinners. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then Christ won't save you. You have to start there. I am a sinner. Like many of us have attested and confessed, I'm guilty. I'm guilty, God. Before you, I am guilty because of my sins. And therefore, I stand condemned. I stand condemned without your salvation. And then we call out to that God for that salvation. And he gives us that salvation because he doesn't tease anyone with salvation. He wants us to be saved. And if you want the power over the sins that are chaining you down, salvation can be yours today. Not tomorrow. Today can be the day of your salvation. The guilty can find the Savior. The hopeless can find hope. And the dead can find eternal life in Jesus. Amen? There's hope. There's hope. For the hopeless. Wow. But you've got to start with this. You've got to admit your need for salvation. Before you will see the Savior's reach for your soul, you must admit your need for salvation. Please, please consider that today. If you're unsure, if you don't know, if you've been saved, today is the day to consider these things, to turn to the Savior, because there's no other way to find forgiveness from God. There's no other way to find full righteousness in God. There's no other way to find eternal life without the Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation, and I ask you and I plead with you to turn to Jesus if you need to. If you have been saved, then you know the hope that salvation brings. But to see this properly, I want us to consider what we are like when we don't have the hope of salvation, okay? What are we like if we don't have the hope of salvation? Or let's ask this question. How do people make decisions, or how did we make decisions, before this salvation? What motivates people? Without salvation and the hope salvation brings us, what motivates us to do the things that we do? I came up with five categories. Number one, feels good. Feels good. That's why I do it. It feels good. It makes me feel good in the moment. Okay? That's a, that's a motivator people use. Makes them feel good in the moment. Number two, Lots of others are doing it. It's common. It's popular. I do it because I see a lot of people doing it. Therefore, it has to be good. It's got to be right. Here's one. Why not do it? Why not? I have no reasoning, but why not do it? I found myself uh, answering things that way before going, why not do it? Here's another one. It will make me richer, more comfortable, or better liked. And lastly, no reason whatsoever. Sometimes we don't even reason. We just do things without reasons. I know my kids do. Um, there's five things, five motivators that people use to do things without the hope of salvation. Because the hope of salvation changes you. See, without the hope of salvation, we're entirely self-seeking people. And you know why that is? Because we don't have any hope. We don't have anything of lasting value to look forward to. So we live in the now, in the moment, whatever makes me happy today because I have nothing to look forward to or I don't know that I do. They don't have hope. 
What will make me happy today in the moment is what people often choose to do. And guys, that's a sad reality. That's a sad reality to not have hope, to have nothing of real lasting value to look forward to except what the pleasure sin can offer you today. That's a sad reality. Now, it is true that some people are investors on the earth. I understand that. And they're considering a future for themselves, okay? They're putting money away for a day that is to come. But without Jesus, they're still investing in a world that is without hope. They're still investing in a world and a day that may not even be here tomorrow. Without salvation, they're investing in a world that doesn't last. It's promised not to last. Do you ever wish you could go back 15 years ago and make an investment in Apple, Amazon, or Google? 15 years ago, if you have the knowledge you have today, wouldn't it be great to go back 15 years ago and plunk a lot of money down in one of those Fortune 500 companies that are doing really, really well today? Right? That'd be great investing, at least earthly investing, to put as much money, $15,000 into Amazon. What would that money be worth today? A lot of money. But what about 15 years ago if you invested in one of these companies? Next slide, please. <laughs> Probably laughing at one of them. Um, what if 15 years ago you plunked all your money into a circuit city, which is closed? I worked there, and maybe that's the reason. Um, Blockbuster, are they around any longer? There's one? Where is it? Okay, if you want to rent a video, truck up to Alaska. <laughs> Alaska, they're known for being with it, so that makes sense. Or Blackberry. How about Blackberry? I think I'm the one guy on the planet still using this thing. So 15, yeah, I expect you to laugh. That's why I brought these. Uh, but what about 15 years ago? If you had the knowledge you have today, do you put all your money into those companies? No. Well, maybe you should for Blackberry just to keep it going. But no, you don't put your money into those. And here's the simple reason why you don't. Because you know they're going to go away. They're not doing well. They go under. That's not good investing, right? It's not good investing to put your money into something that's not going to be here long term. Because the whole point of investing is to have a future hope. That's the whole point. What in this life promises us future success and future hope? Can you guarantee that what you're investing your time, money, and energy into today is going to be here tomorrow? Is that a guarantee for you? Or 20 years? Or better yet, for all of eternity? Is what you're investing your time, your money, your money, your energy into guaranteed to last for the rest of eternity? Would Amazon even say that? No. Will it be here for eternity? Whatever you're investing in. Because proper investing is eternal investing. See, as your pastor, I can't have confidence I'm doing my job properly unless I help us all look beyond the now beyond the temporal world and what they have to offer us. We as Christians, those who are truly saved, are the ones who have real hope because it's in something that lasts for the rest of eternity. And it's the hope we find in the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's the only real hope in this world. Many other things in this world offer temporal happiness and riches and comforts, but none of them offer true hope. And that's the problem. Our enemy, the devil, is targeting our minds and hearts most of all. If he can convince us that we don't need helmets, then he can get to our minds. And once he gets our mind, all hope is gone. 
It's quite simple and ingenious plan, actually, by the devil, but a very evil plan. If he can trade us anything for our future eternal hope in Jesus, then he wins. He wins. He'll trade us anything if we give up the eternal hope we have in Jesus. Because he's not fond of giving us anything. The devil is not fond of giving us things. But he would much rather steal from us the things that really matter in eternity. The things that would really make an impact on our soul for the rest of eternity. And that's another masterful plan by the devil. He convinces us that we can have now joy. And because we can have now joy, he tempts us to think that he has more to offer us than the one true God. Because he has now joy to give us. You can have whatever you want right now. I mean, let's consider the perspective of most of the world. One ruler, the devil, promises to give you now joy, now happiness. And one ruler, the Lord, promises to give you later, lasting joy, but you can't really see it until the other side. So which ruler, using that logic, seems to be offering you more? The one that gives you tangible joy in the moment, right? At least that's how most of the world thinks. But you know what's sad? It's the exact same strategy credit card companies use. Why wait to buy stuff? You don't have to wait until you get money. Use our little card and buy it now and enjoy it today. Aren't we such a great company that cares about the people while your bosses are the evil ones making you wait till payday? We can give it to you now. You can enjoy it now. We will let you have the money today, and you needn't worry about tomorrow until tomorrow. I mean, even look at that little thing I found. Now you can own anything, anytime, anywhere. Today! Go get it! Aren't we a great company? Oh, we're trying to give you everything you want right now. But in all reality, what are credit card companies doing to us? They're stealing from us. Most of us know it, too. They're taking tomorrow's money. They're taking tomorrow's peace. They're taking tomorrow's joy without knowing it, without us knowing it, because they've got us to focus on the happiness of today. Now, joy that doesn't last. And there is the devil in a nutshell. Who cares about tomorrow? I'm the God of today, and today is all we need to concern ourselves with. Is that true? Do we need to only concern ourselves with today? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Everyone knows Tomorrow should be considered also. The next five or 20 years of your life should be considered also. But what about eternity? Are we stopping too short of eternity? Without real hope of lasting joy and eternal life, we will live for whatever the now can give us. And by choosing the now, we forfeit the later and the lasting treasures in Christ. If we see that now joy is the better joy, then we won't care about following Jesus and will chase the fleeting pleasures of the world. Do you have future hope in Jesus? Do you have future hope in Jesus because of your salvation? Are your treasures the temporal treasures of the earth or the eternal treasures of heaven? Guys, we desperately need hope. And the only real hope is found in the salvation of Jesus. I don't want you to get the fake Rolex version of hope. I want you to have the real hope. The real hope found only in Jesus. We finish on this today. The hope of salvation, if we have it, brings us courage in the battle. Hopeful courage. When we actually have eternal hope, we're confident. We're courageous warriors. When we look to the promises of God and see that our treasures are secure in heaven, guarded by God, 
we lose all desires to chase anything the world can give us. And we become determined to do the will of God. Because we consider this, my treasures are permanent and are secure. I need nothing else. God has my treasures. God is guarding my treasures. They can never fade. They can never spoil. They can never go away. I don't need anything else. Now I'm God's warrior. Future hope is a game changer. It's a game changer. People don't have courage in this life because everything feels like a risk. And now that we are learning that we are in a battle for our lives against the hardest enemy ever, don't we need courage, hopeful courage to go forward? I need it. I need hopeful courage. I'm not naturally courageous. I need God's courage. And the helmet of salvation brings us this hopeful courage. And hopeful courage is a deadly weapon against the devil. Deadly weapon. When he sees that we're hopeful and courageous, he's in trouble. Satan's entire game is to shake our hope and make us timid and cowardly creatures. If he can bully us, then we are in the perfect position to make bad trades with him. But the helmet of salvation protects our minds. Without salvation, we listen to Satan's offers like a pro athlete on the free agent market. Whoever has the highest bidder, whoever's the highest bidder who can give us the greatest desires is going to get our devotion. But when we have the real hope of eternal life, and then we are at peace forever with our God, and we become true soldiers for Jesus. Has that happened yet? Have you become a true soldier of Jesus because you have hope and courage that lasts? A determined soldier who has the hopeful courage, thanks to the helmet of salvation, is a truly terrifying soldier for the devil. So how does one get this helmet of salvation, and how do we use it? As we mentioned before, the Savior has to grant us the helmet of salvation. And we're promised in God's word that he will give salvation to everyone who calls to him for it. Look at what it says in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to say it again. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you want to be saved from the sin that brings death, call out to the Lord for it. He's not going to tease you. He came to die so that we could have this salvation. And call out to him and say, Lord, I'm drowning. I'm drowning in my sins. Save me. If you recognize your need for salvation and you call out to the Lord for it, he will save you. He will And you will know this great salvation when you get it. You will know it because it will give you these two things. It will give you a hatred for sin, a disgust for sin. When you're saved, you have to get that because it puts your Lord on the cross. But it also gives you this, true power over sin. The sin that used to control you and own you, you get power to stand in front of it and say, no, not, not any longer. No, you don't own me. Nope. I don't have to do that any longer. I have the power to defeat you. Your very nature will change. And you will be born again. You'll be given a new soul and a new life that desires to please the Lord and accomplish his will. And once you are given this salvation, you will have access to and the ability to put on the helmet of salvation every day. Every day. Salvation, hope, and courage can be yours every day for the rest of your life. 
For those who haven't been saved, your job is very simple. You must see your need for salvation, for salvation and plead with the Savior to save you. So the enslavement can stop today. And I would say again, do it today while the window of salvation is still open because I don't know if it's open tomorrow. But the helmet of salvation can be yours today. For those who truly believe that they have been saved and can validate it by obedience and devotion to Jesus, we still have to put the helmet on every day, right? We still know we need to put the helmet of salvation on every day. And it looks like the same thing the other pieces of armor look, really. I mean, it looks like eight or seven or eight pieces of armor we got to put on every day. That's exhausting, but it's really the same thing. It's discipline. It's discipline. Discipline to go before the Lord. Discipline to do what the Lord has taught you. Discipline to learn. Discipline to pray. Discipline to be around the church. It's the same thing. How you put on the, God, the helmet of salvation is by discipline. And the most practical way I could think to discipline yourself for the helmet of salvation is to look at, to gaze into and to linger looking at the hope of salvation that Jesus brings you. Because you have to remember the devil is targeting our minds. He's trying to corrupt our minds. He's trying to use the credit card strategy to help us understand we need now joy. I need everything now, right now, and chase it. But when we look at the hope of salvation, man, it makes us think differently. And we start going, no, I don't need it now. I don't need this now. I don't need fleeting pleasures of sin. What I need is lasting, lingering, eternal hope. And that's only found in Jesus. The devil doesn't want to actually offer you anything, but he does want to trade you. He wants to trade you now fleeting pleasures of sin for your future hope in Jesus. And I'm going to say it this way today. Don't apply for the devil's credit card. Don't sign up for that. It's not going to work out well. It's going to steal from you. We need to consider that the hope that Jesus offers us is so much greater than anything. And take that hope, take the hope that salvation offers us, and place it next to anything the world can give you. I mean, sit down and seriously put it on paper if you need to. Whatever you're prone to fall into and be tempted by, place that, whatever the joy and pleasures that gives you, next to the hope of salvation that Jesus gives you. And figure out which is the better investment, Amazon or BlackBerry. Which one's going to last? Because when we do, we will be filled with hope, and that hope will bring us courage. If we look into the salvation that Jesus grants us, if we really meditate upon its lasting eternal joy and treasures, we'll become filled with hope, and that hope will lead to courage and determination to accomplish God's will. It will. If you look into the hope of salvation enough, it will give you courage and determination to do God's will. Does that describe you today? Do you have salvation through Jesus? Will you take this fight to the devil by disciplining yourself every day to gaze at and look at the hope of salvation? If so, you're going to be full of courage to accomplish God's will. But you need to stay disciplined. Disciplined to put on the helmet every single day because you're in battle. Going into battle without your helmet is certain death. The discipline of putting on your salvation is obvious. Put it on. Look into it. Gaze at it. 
Pray about it. Remember it. Talk about it with your friends. The helmet of salvation is not just to have hopeful courage for the sake of hopeful courage. It's for the sake of obeying the Lord and doing his will. That's why we need courage. To do his will. To obey his commandments. That's why we need courage. And I want to remember as we close here that this discipline starts as an individual discipline. Okay? Every single one of us needs to discipline ourselves, but it must fan out to all of Wyoming Valley Church. Okay? Just like we talked about today, this is not an individual war we're in. It's the church versus the evils of darkness. And we need to all have each other's back. We need to all have this kind of discipline so we can advance the name of Jesus. Because when strength comes together with discipline, it also brings unity. And when we're unified, when we're strong, and when we're disciplined, we accomplish God's will and we advance the name of Jesus. If we get God's strength and we're disciplining ourselves and we're unifying together to accomplish God's will upon this earth, we're going to make progress. And honestly, if the question is, is why aren't we making progress, one of those three things aren't happening. We're either not strong in the Lord, we're either not disciplined, or we're either not unifying together. Because if all three of those things are there, we will make progress. We will advance the name of Jesus upon this earth. We will accomplish God's will, and the devil will lose. Christian, put the helmet of salvation on, and know the hopeful courage that Jesus offers you today. Without salvation, we are doomed. With God's salvation, we cannot be defeated. Go to Jesus. Go to him. Either for the first time ever, but also every day of your life. Go to Jesus, because Jesus is our hopeful courage. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this message. I hope it made an impact like it did upon my soul. Father, we ask you for the strength that only you can provide. We ask you to remind us to discipline ourselves. Father, we ask you to help us unify together. Father, give us the hopeful courage that only the salvation of Jesus can bring us. If there are some souls here today who don't have that salvation and don't have the power over sin, Father, bring them out of the darkness. Save their soul. Give them the power over sin. Father, for those of us who have it, I pray that you'd motivate us and encourage us to go forward today because we have hope and that hope brings courage. And help us to do it for Jesus, to remember our Lord is the greatest motivator we have. To see him one day and to lay our crowns at his feet would be the best reward any of us could ever receive. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen.